tuning in to the World XP Podcast. If you're enjoying the content, please remember to drop a sub, drop a like, and leave your thoughts down below in the comments. With that, we will see you guys in the podcast. Welcome, Dean Rucker, to the World XP Podcast. I know uh, most of the people who will be watching this will know you as as Dean Rucker. Uh, we crossed paths back when I was a freshman at Mary Washington back in, oh, geez, 2013. I feel old. <laughs> you're, well, you're young. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But welcome. I really appreciate your time. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. So you want to go ahead and do a little uh, introduction for those who don't know who you are, uh, and then we can go from there. Okay. I am Cedric Rucker, the Associate Vice President for Student Affairs and Dean of Students here at the University of Mary Washington, a beautiful liberal arts university in the heart of Fredericksburg, Virginia, a charming historic town, boyhood home of George Washington and Miss Minnie historical events and a wonderfully beautiful university at the heart of it all. Indeed. It was a great, it was a very good formative period for me. I think as an individual, I learned a lot about myself uh, and the faculty and staff there were were great. I couldn't have asked for a better four year uh, experience there. Um, But I do want to, so most of the students there, if they, when they find out about you, it's either through your sense of fashion or you're dressing up as Winnie the Pooh for Halloween every year. So just out of my own curiosity, why did you start dressing up as Winnie the Pooh? Where did that come from? Winnie the Pooh actually uh, came as a consequence of interaction with students. We had a student who uh, eventually became the president of the Honor Council. His name was Andrew Painter. Uh, Andrew Painter is an established attorney in Northern Virginia now, but during his student era at Mary Washington, he was someone who was very immersed in the cultural and community life that is both Mary Washington and the city of Fredericksburg. Um, We have annually here in Fredericksburg a holiday or a Christmas parade. Um, I always go downtown and I watch the parade with a group of fellow faculty members and staff and friends from the gym. I belong to a gym called Body Works in downtown, and they have a big window. Uh, It's kind of like a fishbowl window, so we can watch the parade without freezing to death. Uh, So that's where we gather. We had gathered for the holiday parade, and I'm looking out the window, and there are the floats, and there are the marchers, and the various citizens and constituencies of Fredericksburg. And lo and behold, I see a face that's very familiar. That was the face of Andrew Painter, who had dressed up in a costume, uh, (laughs) and he was marching down the street. Back then, I knew that Mary Washington did not have a contingent in the parade. So I was very curious as to why our Honor Council president was marching down the street handing out candy and going from side to side, entertaining young children. This worried me a bit, being the dean. (laughs) So I quickly ran outside into the cold and encountered Andrew and said, Andy, what are you doing here? He said, oh, I'm having fun. I said, how did you get into this parade? Oh, I just joined in. I said, because you had a costume, an extra costume lying around? And he said, yes. And I just, I couldn't stop laughing. It was hysterical. It reminded me of Animal House and that scene where the students parades through the community. It's like, oh my goodness, this is going to happen. And I I just got a big laugh at that. And I just, you know, it, it just, it got to me how engaging that was. 
So that's where Pooh came from. I decided that that would be great on campus. It's a great way to engage students. Andy was having fun handing out candy. I could have fun handing out candy to students. For me, it would be a lot more thematic in, 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 in terms of Halloween versus doing it in the midst of a holiday parade. That's where Pooh came from, and it became legend, uh, and the students love it. If you can look over my head, you'll see a photograph of me in the Pooh costume, which became a big Mary Washington tradition, something that students always look forward to. Even in the midst of COVID, we found a way of bringing Pooh to life on campus, virtually, as well as the return to in-person Pooh this year. Yeah, it was a staple. I remember even myself, me and my roommates, always looking forward to it, like, oh, going Dean Rucker spotting this year <laughs> in the Winnie the Pooh costume. All what, right. what became really fun was students started dressing in costumes uh, yeah. for Halloween. And it was not just Dean Rucker out on campus walk. I saw such a variety of costumes uh, that developed over the course of the year. It became a big tradition that students would dress up to go to class as a consequence of Pooh being there all day. Yeah, it was great. It made it a lot more fun because at that point, depending on how the classes are, it's kind of like the midterm sort of there's tests running around. And it's a great way to kind of have some fun and relieve some of that stress that is going into that a lot of the students are feeling at, at that time. So that's one of a number of things that I remember personally that you did. But um, I want to go back to how you ended up there in the first place, because for me, I know you as the Winnie the Pooh guy and, and all the sorts, but how did you get to that? How did you end up? Did you always want to be in higher education? Was that something that that had been a goal of yours or did you kind of just fall into it like many of us in, in our current careers or how did that work? I think for me, it's like one of the wonders of a liberal arts education is that you get to sample, you get Mm -hmm. to experiment, you get to find what you're passionate about. Uh, When I came to undergraduate school, my intention was to be an attorney. Uh, First and foremost, I mean, the opportunity to take advantage of internships and what we call externships, these were many internships, was an essential part of my journey because I had the opportunity to uh, do a couple of externships and an internship in a law office and quickly discovered that I had no interest in the law at all because my sense of the law came as a consequence of the media, uh, came Mm. as a consequence of television shows. I mean, I grew up with Perry Mason and I refer to, uh, when I talk to students today, I said that was the, uh, the, what is the, the show called? The SUV, um, police show, the attorney show. I, the uh, name law and Order? Law and Order, yes. Like yeah. It was the Law and Order of uh, this, this era. And in terms of that show, you get to see how the process works and how decisions are made in the course of an hour. That's not how the legal system works no, at all. No, it, no, it's a even. very extended process. It's based on precedent. You have to do research. I mean, it's all, all sorts of things that did not stimulate happiness for me. I couldn't imagine you know, being in an office for hours working on a case. Yes, I work hard today, but I really wasn't passionate about that. Fortunately, it was a consequence of taking courses and discovering a discipline within the liberal arts that, that I said, stimulated me, that worked for me. Eventually, I came upon sociology, and I loved, I had a professor, his name was Bruce London. Bruce was the most amazing 
individual I'd met. I mean, he was young. He was a Vietnam vet. He had had, uh, he traveled to um, Thailand and other places. He was very engaging. He was a, a young faculty member. And I just connected with him. I would go to this office and we would have talks for, I mean, I kid you not, hours. I was very stimulated by the way that he challenged my thinking and the, mm. you know, the construction of the realities that I found myself a part of. I mean, we had discussions about race, class, gender, uh, all of these types of things that, that, ca- that were a part of my development as a young person. I mean, I, I'm an inner city kid from Richmond, Virginia. You, you don't always understand how things occur as they do. And having the opportunity to engage someone like Bruce was an essential part of my global understanding of my sense of place and the way that the world around me operated. I I love the discipline, and that's how I decided, that's what I decided to pursue. Fortunately for me as well, Bruce, again, my, my friend, my mentor, discovered a program that existed Uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, between my junior and senior year, I could go to grad school. Uh, He found this program, and I applied and got accepted and went to UVA. uh, UVA's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences between my junior and senior year, and it was fantastic. I took courses, and, you know, come from the small liberal arts institution. Can you be successful with the big fish? And it Mm. was amazing how it was easy. And I'm not throwing stones. It was just the reality of uh, being prepared at a place like Mary Washington, your ability to write, your ability to speak, your ability to engage academically. Those conversations I was having with Bruce in his office translated very well to the seminar style of education offered or extended in a graduate program. I was ready as a consequence of, again, the experiences that I had at, at Mary Washington. I went on from here as an undergraduate to UVA in grad school. I had the good fortune of having an, another mentor, uh, and that was Bill Elwood. Bill Elwood was the associate dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. And Bill would take me with him when he recruited graduate students for grad school. So I, I would travel with this man who knew a lot about different graduate programs. And we spent hours in the car or in his office talking about life, about future, about you know research opportunities, all of these types of things. I remember when I was finishing my, my, my master's program, he said to me, he said, Cedar, you should stay here. You, you're, you're really good for UVA. You represent the institution with distinction, and we'd love to have you as a part of the community. I said, Bill, there's nothing for me to do here. He said, let me look around and see, you know, to, if there are any opportunities. I got a call from Bill the very next day, and I kid you not, this is what happened. And he said, you have an interview in the Office of Admissions on Friday. I said, an interview? Yeah. He said, they have an opening for an assistant dean position. He said, send me your resume. I ran my resume over to his office. I went in for the interview that Friday. I was hired the next week as the assistant dean of undergraduate admissions at UVA. That's how I got into higher education. It wasn't a plan. It was as a consequence of, again, all of the types of experiences that one has as an undergraduate. I was a very involved student. 
uh, with organizations and activities and the traditions of Mary Washington. I was also a very involved graduate student at UVA. And it really connected me with the rhythm of a collegiate and university environment. So it was easy going out and talking to students about the opportunities afforded by these, these environments. And I loved it. I got back to UVA. I got back from UVA to Mary Washington because of another call. Um, years later, uh, after I worked at UVA for six years, and a friend of me, a friend of mine called from Fredericksburg and said, there's this opportunity at Mary Washington uh, for uh, someone in student activities. I hadn't thought, I didn't think I would ever return to Mary Washington. You know, you graduate and then there's the world that's out there. Yeah. And I sent off a resume and <laughs> I got a call. There was an interview and I was brought to Mary Washington as the associate dean for student activities. Uh, so I was an assistant dean at, Mary, at UVA and then an associate dean at, at Mary Washington coming in. So it was, it was not something that was planned at all. Uh, it was doors opening and be, being ready for the experiences that were extended. Yeah, that makes total sense. I, I had two, two thoughts that, uh, like, pertaining to what you were saying. The first about your conversations with the, the first mentor that you mentioned, and that's kind of what this podcast has done for me, I've been able to have all these conversations with all these people who are doing different things and figure out kind of like you were saying, my place in the world. And and then the, the second thought I had was the preparation for the seminar style of graduate school. Um, so Jenna, my fiance, just graduated from George Mason with her master's in industrial organizational psychology. And she was the same, the speaking intensive and the writing intensive classes at, at WASH, she flew through the master's. I think she had like a 397 when she graduated with her master's, just prepared, knocked it out of the park. And, and part of me wishes I could go back a little bit and take more advantage of, of those. But obviously, at hindsight being, being 2020, but yeah, the, the way that it's set up to make you learn how to give presentations and learn how to write um, has helped me in my career, I was not good at giving presentations in high school. And I had to learn very quickly once, once I got to Mary Washington to, to be less bad at them, or I wasn't going to do very well. (laughs) So, so yeah, it helped it prepared me massively in the the internships and all the opportunities that was there by the time, probably I'd say between my junior and senior years, when I kind of took off with, with really understanding the value of the speaking and the writing intensive, why they were there when you're a freshman, you're 18, you're like, why do I have to write all this? It's like, this isn't fun. You don't realize it until later. So, but the way it's set up is just, is really, is really well done in my opinion. I don't like everyone I know who went to different schools didn't have that at all. Right. How long, how long back in the tradition was like the speaking and the writing intensive? Was that, has that always been there or was that relatively new? Well, it, they were always a part of the curriculum. They weren't designated the way that they are now. I mean, because now you have to have a certain number of speaking intensive courses and writing intensive courses. Writing and speaking have always been a part of the liberal arts curriculum here at the University of Mary Washington. Even when I started teaching here in the early 90s, I mean, you had papers, and, and I, I taught my, my sociology classes like they were seminars. Even though I had 20 to 25 students in a class, mm. I, I was not a person who was going to stand. Because I, you know, I taught classes in the evening because I had my administrative dean's duties during the day. 
And I had no intention of standing before a class for two hours and 45 minutes lecturing. No. Uh, it was an exchange. My expectation was that students would read and be prepared and we would have a dialogue or a discussion uh, to see, you know, to, as they process the information. And they had papers and they had presentations. I, I love that. That was, for me, the most magical part of the educational experience, to be in a classroom setting and to witness students grasp concepts and be able to not just spit them back, but to utilize them as tools to analyze situations that would impact their lives or the communities that they were a part of was so uplifting as a university instructor. I, I love that. Uh, and, and like I said, that's, all, that's been the nature of the education that I've experienced here and many students have experienced here for generations. I, I love that about this place. I always tell students it's very hard to disappear here. Uh, you, you can't just sit in the classroom and, 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 and just it's going to be a passive experience. That's not Mary Washington. Faculty members will call you out. I mean, yeah. You have to give presentations. You, you, you have to talk about your research. I mean, it, it's, it's just, I think, a big positive uh, for a place like this. And as I, as I stay in touch with alumni over the de- generations, they talk about how the tools that they've garnered here continue to pay off throughout the course of their lives. It, it makes us adaptive. I mean, many people don't have jobs in their disciplines, but mm-hmm. the skills that they've garnered have allowed them to fit into so many professions. It's just, it's amazing. And they're able to, the, the transference component is also one that has been beneficial. The skills that you learn over here have uh, applicability to a, a, a profession over here or something that's emerging. Um, because the job market doesn't stay the same. The the opportunities that I had 30 years ago, some of those jobs don't even exist anymore. But I have my peers who are still active professionals in new job sectors. And students, graduates, are employed in new job sectors or professional sectors as a consequence of the academic experiences that started here. It's It's wonderful to see. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're young going into school and you don't really know what you want to do, getting a well-rounded sort of taste into different things. And what the writing and speaking really does, at least when I realized it later on, was writing especially was is a way to communicate. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not often thought of as that. Like going through high school, nobody tells you that you're writing to communicate something. You're, you're writing so you can fill up the page count, so you can submit the thing. At least how I, school was not my strongest suit going going in going through high school, um, but I loved learning. And so the seminar classes at that wash were were amazing for me because it's a discussion. Like if everyone is in it for like in in good faith, which you would hope that they are, it's kind of a you're working together to discover some something and figure something out. And that's how I learned best. And so being able to take a lot of seminar classes at at Mary Washington was really helpful for me. And it got me out of the, the, like (laughs) the school is boring bubble of high school, whereas you just sit there and the teacher is up and talking about stuff. And if you're not interested, then that stinks and you can't really ask questions and all the rest. And Mary Washington was 
super helpful in, in kind of changing my view on that a little bit. It made me see like when you go back in the history of a UVA, for instance, or those or William and Mary or those old schools, like what it like the the older schools, what it was meant to be kind of the that like what the ideal of higher education was. And that's something that I almost fear we're losing a bit in, in the current like environment that we're in, but I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? Because that was something I wanted to ask you about because college and the the growing up process that it that it has for a lot of like that period of of a person's life is so important it's the first time you're away from home for for most people and to learn how to communicate and kind of associate into broader society is super important but i fear lots of i like i talk to friends who are like oh i don't know if i want to like my kids go to college because it's too expensive and this and that and i fear that we're missing a a very important piece that college provides people. I don't know if you have thoughts or thoughts on that. Well, I mean, I would say first and foremost, in a place like this, it's very difficult. This speaks to what you were talking about before. It's difficult to be a passive learner mm-hmm. um, and because you have to engage the enterprise. Uh, I, I think in terms of the value of college, people usually go to the economic outcomes you know everyone has heard the line that if you're a college graduate lifetime earnings are a lot more significant than if you did not go to college Uh, and and individuals are you know looking at their lives and the prospects of you know what the outcomes will be I understand how that factors into decision making I'm one of those people who doesn't believe that everyone should go to college um, college was very good for me. Uh, it was, it's been beneficial to a lot of people, but there are opportunities beyond the collegiate environment that are also aspirational and beneficial. I, my brother is a craftsperson, uh, and, and he has a very healthy life, and he very much enjoys what he does. And he, he is not a person uh, who would have thrived uh, in this type of environment. But he's still a, a great contributor to the communities that he's a part of, a community leader, and, and, and very much involved. So, again, I, I wouldn't pin, you know, stick the pin and say everyone should, should, should do this. But I think for the individuals who are able to, and the individuals who do make the decision to to enter the collegiate environment, you know, it does have some amazing opportunities. I mean, the sort of things that we've been talking about to this point. I mean, being able to think differently. I mean, I, I look at the types of conversations that I remember having in college, not just in the classroom, in the in, in in the hallway at two or three o'clock in the morning, just talking with your group of friends about, you know, something that was happening in, in, in the world or in the community and, and being informed uh, about those things. I mean, the, the, the conversations that we're having about what is truth and what is real today. I mean, one of the things that's so beneficial or was beneficial is the ability not just to think critically, but to assess and analyze information, which is an important skill, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a a critical talent uh, today. I I think that's something that college environments do well. The diversity of people that you get to engage in a a collegiate environment, the different political perspectives that are brought together. I mean, you're in the same room. You may be even sharing a bedroom 
or you know, yeah. with a roommate who's very different culturally, um, socially. I mean, I, 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 like I said, I'm a, I'm a kid from the inner city. I learned things and had experiences that I never imagined myself having as a consequence of the friendships that was, I was able to establish during the course of the collegiate journey. All of those things contributed to the person that I am today. And I am so thankful for the richness of the mosaic of those experiences. I talk about meeting and having someone like Bruce London, uh, who was an incredible uh, mentor for me. I, I, <laughs> this man would just, I mean, his faculty members have office hours. But he never threw me out of his office when, you know, because I have this question. Like, can we talk about this? And it was like, different things on a weekly basis. And, 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 and it was just one of those things that he would push back or he would bring in a different perspective on something. And it was like, you know, okay, let me think about that. And we could get back to that next week. Oh my goodness. That was so rich. It, it really was. It excited me about the learning process and about learning outcomes and about the adventure that was and is the collegiate environment. Those are the things that I fear individuals miss out on if they don't have access to these types of environments. And also being able to engage a world of difference. I mean, oh my goodness. I mean, it, it, just, it just gives you the opportunity to garner so many different perspectives. And as you go out into the world and engage different types of people, you're in a position to understand that you don't necessarily have to agree with individuals who have different backgrounds or different values, but you can learn something. You can assess, you can assess mm-hmm. things as a consequence of those very important engagements. That, that's to be treasured. It, it, it really is. I, I love that about the higher educational environment. And, and faculty members who are from so many different backgrounds, who are from so many disciplines. Oh, my goodness. I mean, where else are you going to find yourself where today you can talk with a physicist and, you know, that afternoon, that evening you're talking to someone who's doing, um, you know, focusing on an, an issue that, that was, you know, a part of your growing up developmentally from the psychology department. <laughs> is awesome yeah that, that that's what the collegiate environment is about i i love that yeah no it's 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 amazing and one of the the, the other things that it speaks to is well one having the sort of the wherewithal to go out and seek a mentor like you like bruce was for you mm-hmm. and the importance of somebody like that to kind of even even if you're interested in other things as well to have somebody who you can go to when you're kind of growing as an individual. Like, hey, I've, what, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And, mm-hmm. and to foster those relationships with, like you were saying, the, the, the diversity of people who are there from all sorts of backgrounds, value systems. And there's a quote, I forgot who said it, but it's to treat everyone as if they know something that you don't. Mm-hmm. And that I've taken that with me and I try to apply that all the time. Sometimes that's a bit difficult when you're tired and you're like, oh, this, like this guy, man. But like, but yeah, it's really important. Human beings are amazing generally as, as 
just people and so to, you can learn something from from almost every from like anyone and the depth of knowledge that the people have especially at universities given the amount of schooling and, and conversations that like especially the professors like that's their life uh, mm-hmm. the amount of depth of knowledge that they have that is available to tap into is is phenomenal that's why i kind of i kind of like following some of the academic podcasts it's like just to see what's going on in in, in that world because i like to stay like tuned in a little bit even though i'm off in the world doing other things but yeah, it's, it's amazing i had um dr farnsworth on mm-hmm. uh the podcast when the whole when russia invaded ukraine and that was amazing great to get a perspective and i wouldn't have had access to like if I was in school that day, I probably would have gone into his or Professor Davidson's office and been like, "Can you explain to me what's going on?" Because I really <laughs> don't understand at all. But it's a resource that's available to tap into, and and I wish I had done it more when I was there. But it's so important uh, for the students to just understand the, like the value of what's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it, it's a repository of phenomenal information and insights and perspectives. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so your first job at Mary Washington was in student activities and that student activities, like the words mean student activities, but what does that actually mean? That means everything connected to the student experience um, that helps to connect them with the college in the sense of university spirit or college spirit. Um, I worked with all student organizations um, from the student, student Government Association, the Entertainment Committee, all the clubs and organizations, uh, the publications. Uh, it, was, it, was, I, I, it was fun. It, it really was a great deal of fun. Um, everything from booking major concerts. I mean, mm, I, 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 my name's on contracts with John Mayer and <laughs> Run DMC. And you know, the Gen Blossoms, I mean, all of these people I've had the opportunity to meet uh, here at Mary Washington as entertainers because of the work that was done by the Entertainment Committee, Class Council, the organization that's responsible for many of the special traditions of the university, that, for Devil Goat Day, for you know, ring dance, for spring formal, grad ball all of those major, major events and, and programs that help to foster community, connect students um, to one another. Um, the, 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 the sense of what we think of as collegiate engagement um, today, uh, clubs focused on academic interest and professional interest, all of these types of, 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 of organizations that give the institution agency. Um, it, it was, it was, it was great fun. That was one of the reasons, actually, for leaving uh, UVA. One of my responsibilities in the admissions office was being the liaison to student organizations uh, for when the uh, admissions office needed students for different types of admissions programs, like showcases and these types of things. I worked with the university guys and the uh, student association and clubs and organizations, the Greek organizations, uh, to make sure that you had representatives to give voice to the sort of formalized admissions process that we presented as deans, the students could talk about the life of the institution. And 
one of the elements that was that kind of that I didn't like a lot was having to leave the university. It was great going out doing the admissions work, but when I was away, um, which was a lot of the fall, I would miss out on the engagements I had with students. And that's something I wanted. So the opportunity to work in student activities was a big positive because that's what I would be doing, working with students on an ongoing basis to assist them in developing their leadership skills, their programming skills, the, the sort of extracurricular or co-curricular components of their lives. As an undergraduate, that was one of the things that truly connected me to the university. I talk about my relationship with Bruce London, but beyond that, it was all of the other things of, that were a part of university life. I was a disc jockey at, at WMWC, 5.40 a.m. Back then, it was an a.m. station. It was amazing. And, you know, I, I, you know, I had listeners. It was, it was you know, it, it, it just taught me many things that you don't always get in the classroom that are a part of the collegiate environment. I was a part of student organizations of a variety of different types uh, and a student leader on campus. And those are the skills that are also applicable to the sort of careers that we're able to have. We don't just take the skills and the talents that we've got, we garner in the classroom. We also take with us all of those other experiences and the hands-on opportunities that we've had as a part of these communities and to the sectors that we pursue as far as our careers are concerned. I know many students who are professional programmers today as a consequence of programming many types of events on campus. But that was the draw uh, for student activities, to be able to assist students in developing the types of experiences that other students would be able to engage to bring them closer to an institutional identity and closer to one another. I love those years. So is that why then, why you stopped teaching then as well? You no, I did. I never stopped teaching. I mean, I, I, the entire time I was here, I, I taught. Did you really? Uh, yeah, I taught in the sociology Oh, my department. gosh. Yeah. I, I, I talked the entire that. time. <laughs> I never oh. saw So you must, uh, your class, the list to get into your class, I assume, was quite long then. Well, yeah, some of the classes had extensive waiting lists. Um, but, you know, there are lots of classes here that have waiting lists. Sure. Because well, me, the students find them change, so appealing. Let me change the question then and say, how did you balance that? Because as you, as you, came back to wash and then by the time that that i was there and in the recent years you were all over the place at at homecoming i'd see a rugby game right. or at halloween all over the place but you still had your classes so how are you able to 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 balance that and then like i guess you just kind of dove all in and i'm just curious to get your mindset in in that situation i'm not really sure i have a well thought out question but i guess just what's your mindset? And I know you've touched on some of it, but. It, it was really just to prioritize things that were important. For me, connecting with students was always important. I mean, as, as, as the dean, you know, how could I represent the students, especially to senior administrators, without knowing students, without engaging students, without some sense of how they experience the university. And in order to get that, I couldn't just sit in my office. I mean, it was very critical that, you know, 
you spend, and students know if you're sincere. Students know if you're real. And, you know, if you're not going to show up, it doesn't, for them, it indicates that you really don't care. So it was really important that I attended many different types of events and programs. So I would always look at the schedule of events and, and plot out what I was going to attend. And it wasn't the same type of events every week. It was to be visible at a cross-section of programs, events, performances, you know, everything from dances to concerts to sporting events um, to lecture series to, I mean, this, at, at the end of the year, psychi students have their research presentations. To be present at all of those types of uh, events was, was, I think, critical to making sure that not only that the students had a connection to each other, but to the university on the whole and the individuals who are there to support re- and resource them with reference to addressing those things that are critical parts of their experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's how I did it. And I taught on Mondays. It was, it was very important for me to designate a day that wasn't going to conflict with a lot of programming, as an example. It's, it, the big concerts didn't occur on Monday night. I mean, you know, as a student, when did the weekend start? It started on Thursday. Yep. <laughs> and so, you know, making sure you're available Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for the big social type of events that's, that students would engage. Uh, some types of, some events were on Tuesday and Wednesday, but Monday was the quietest of nights as, as far as programs are, were concerned. So it was easier to designate that evening for teaching. And that's why I taught, you know, a Monday night class that ran for two hours and 45 minutes because uh, I could do that on a weekly basis. And I taught, different, I taught several different classes over the course of the journey from principles of sociology to ethnic studies to American, you know, American society. I taught perspectives on sexuality. They were just different classes. And the sociology and women and gender studies departments gave me the flexibility to select what I wanted to uh, and teach the, to teach those courses. And it was, it, was, it was, again, just a fantastically stimulating experience. It also enhanced my connection to students to be, because to be in the classroom gave a sense of balance because the primary reason that students are here, in addition to those wonderful other things that I just mentioned, was because of the educational experience. So as dean, I was constantly aware of the pace of the semester. I know when midterms were because I was giving midterms. I could also see students in a different context. Having students in classes uh, was valuable because you know you could also assess the academic pressures uh, that were a part of their experiences. So it really it, it really presented to me a fuller picture of the whole student experience. So that's why I taught the entire time that I I had been a part of this community because it really helped me to really understand the student experience wholly. Yeah, that makes total sense when you describe it in in that way. And for those listening, what he's saying is what happens when you dive head first and take advantage of everything that is at a university that like, this is the result, right? Right here on the other side of the screen. Um, so when you're teaching, since you taught a bunch of different classes, did you pick them based on kind of what you were interested in at that moment? Or did you have a sort of a cycle that you would go through? Or 
how did you choose those? Because especially just given you're teaching just the one class on, on Mondays, that can vary wild, wildly uh, within the same discipline, of course, but it can vary wildly. So how did you pick that? And was it just like, you're like, oh, I've read some research on this. I want to have some I, I, A lot of it was it because of the, the graduate education that I had received. I mean, as a sociology, a person uh, with a sociology background, race, class, and gender had been really an important part and focused on focus on communities uh, was was a significant part of that. Uh, so when I came to Mary Washington, I had taught at UVA a, a principles of sociology class uh, for a long time, and that was the first course that I ta- I taught here. It was just bringing that that UVA course to uh, Mary Washington. The class that I added after that came as a consequence of working with a consortium of faculty members, an interdisciplinary group, who were seeking to broaden the representation in the curriculum. Um, this, was, this was 1990, uh, the, starting the summer of 1990, a group, there were about 23 of us, and we got together and we, we assessed the courses that were available across the university and took great note that there were very few courses that were inclusive of certain themes, race, uh, gender, even though this was founded as historically a female institution, many of the classes didn't reflect, uh, you know, the, the populations, the population was the most representative population uh, at the institution. So how could you do that across the institution. And it was a phenomenal group because you had uh, had Mary Pence, you had Kimis, you had Craig Vasey from the philosophy department, Carol Corcoran um, was from psychology. You had these people coming from so many different areas. And we worked hard to propose a course in ethnic studies, um, which would allow students to have this experience or have information from an interdisciplinary perspective, which was not offered until that time. And I will never forget uh, one of the most significant experiences that I ever had was Dr. Farmer. We had a, there was a curriculum committee that had to approve courses and the course had gone because the group of us, we worked on it uh, during the summer, but it had to go to the curriculum committee to, to be approved so that it could be taught. It went to the curriculum committee. Curriculum committee endorsed the course, but it had to go to the faculty because we met as a faculty of the whole. Uh, the faculty of the whole met to discuss that individual course. This is the first time, I think, in institutional history that the faculty, the entire faculty, met to discuss one course. And there were individuals who did not want the course taught um, because, again, it was interdisciplinary. It was... For, for many, it was not in keeping with, you know, a course nestled in an individual department. And um, they, they were just challenged by this different, this different approach that the institution was using, even though, again, 23 of us had been working on this course. And at one point in the meeting, James Farmer was in his wheelchair and he was rolled to the front of the auditorium. And he, he made a speech, and he because he was the person who was teaching uh, the civil rights course. That was the only other course here. He was teaching the civil rights course, and he, he indicated that this course was needed because we needed more courses 
of this nature in, uh, you know, he, especially at a liberal arts institution. And he endorsed the course and he endorsed me teaching the course. Uh, you know, here, here, one of the big four of the civil rights movement uh, is emphasizing to the academic community the importance of diversifying the curriculum. That course came as a consequence of the work of that group. Uh, and I was the first person to teach it. I had worked on it with that, that group, but it was really, it, it was great. And the, the, ultimately, it became a very popular course because there was a requirement that was added to the curriculum um, for, in the, in, the, in the arena of multicultural, um, what was the, I was, forget what the requirement was labeled because this was so long ago, but it was a multicultural sort of course requirement. And that course got, it was really popular. And that's, that was the first time I had this extensive waiting list, I mean, of students who wanted to get into the course. Then the American Society course uh, came as a consequence of the, you know, of the sociology department. There was a faculty member who had taught the course, but the course had not been taught in about four or five years. Um, so I got together with colleagues in that department and I said, I will teach the course. So it was structuring a course where there was an academic need because you know, it was a part of the generalized course requirements of the institution, but it had not been taught. So we needed to make sure that students had entree to this course that would allow them to meet academic requirements. Uh, so that's where that course came, came from. The perspectives course, the perspective of women and gender studies course, perspectives and sexualities, which was an interdisciplinary course, came as a consequence of student leaders uh, coming to me, um, the uh, academic affairs chair of SGA, um, came in and had a very serious discussion with me about, again, the diversification of the curriculum in that it was not inclusive of courses that focused on the experience of queer people. Uh, and, and our students were going to go out uh, into the world and they were as business leaders, as teachers, uh, they were going to engage, be engaging all sorts of persons and they didn't have any information, they didn't have any insights, they didn't have any preparation for, again, these types of diversities, which were a reflection of the world that they would inherit. Uh, so the SGA lobbied, the Academic Affairs Chair uh, lobbied, and I wrote a course proposal, and that course proposal was accepted. We didn't meet as a faculty of the whole uh, in that instance, and I taught that course for about 15 years, um, because again, the students wanted it. Nice. So some came as a, as, uh, because of my interest, others became because of an institutional need, or that it, there was a desire for the community to be a lot more reflective of the growing diversity of higher education. Uh, and now we have so many courses which you know, discuss, which include many of these topics that we introduced back in the early 90s. It's just, it's been phenomenal to see. I mean, we have a women and gender studies major now. <laughs> Remember when we got together as a committee to talk about one course. Uh, we're, you know, we have minors now uh, in areas that did not exist before. Uh, but again, this comes as a consequence of the interests of students, the interests of faculty, 
to really have our graduates prepared for the world that they will inherit. Yeah, makes total sense. I have one quick question. And then what is, I know what sociology is kind of, but I don't think it's very vague for a lot of people. Can you sort of... Psychology is individuals, sociology is groups. We we focus on uh, the groups, how we, how the social world influences us, uh, how social forces um, play a role in our lives, in our communities, in our experiences. That, mm. that's, that's, that's what it is. Gotcha. And out of curiosity, from out, when you, say, you said you wrote a course proposal, what does that entail? Like from, the, from just a general process of adding a course or changing the curriculum, what is involved in that? Essentially, you're, you're presenting a proposal of, for the course, why the course exists, what, what are the learning outcomes associated with the course, uh, how, how does the course meet academic objectives as they're established uh, within, the, the, within the community, how the course will be taught, what materials will be used in the course, what techniques will be a part of the, the, uh, the classroom and beyond the classroom experiences of, of students. It's really drawing out or mapping out a course that will hopefully eventually be taught within the institution. Fair enough. Makes sense. <laughs> so, so <laughs> and, and most courses go through that process. Students don't see that. Yeah. They see the outcome because when you walk in and you get that syllabus, mm-hmm. That's come as a consequence of a faculty member or a group of faculty members doing doing the work <laughs> yeah. to get to that place. Yeah, well, that, well, that's why I asked because there's there's lots of courses that are in there that we just take uh, for granted as givens. Like obviously, right. cal- like calculus one hundred one is going to be in there, like ob- like obviously, or things like that. Yeah, but, but even that course has to be developed. Cor- correct, and so that's why nobody you don't really think about it from that perspective and then you and then you run into something like i took a class called the uh, history of math and that was the one i was like hmm, that's interesting found actually found it quite interesting but it's one of those where it's a very niche like niche class and mm-hmm. so you wonder how it ended up there so that's that's my reason for asking that but i want to move on a little bit and and so you've been in higher education for a long time and you've seen lots of classes come uh classes of like like the class of 2017 or whatever come and go what has that been like for you to have been seeing off your graduates into the real world for for so long and how have you seen it change the progression the preparation of of graduates to go off into the real world how what's kind of the development over time been like and your own sort of um reaction i guess because i'm sure you're fond of some students and they leave and then you make new relationships and then they come in and then they go and it's this process of the shifting of of people and times and all sorts of things but you see you've been there the whole time so what's that been like for you well this i I go back to my student era this is my 41st 40 something year uh in higher education and it's 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 a marvel um, because first and foremost, institutions don't stay the same. Uh, they continue to evolve. They continue to transform as a consequence of the, the currency of individuals who, who come in. Um, you know, 
we got new groups of students every four years. I mean, completely new groups. In addition to that, you get new faculty. I mean, the faculty who are here at Mary Washington today are not the faculty that I had. There, there's no one here who was here when I was in. Uh, there, are, there are three faculty members who were here uh, when I was a student here. Um, and for the most part, there's been a sea change. These individuals bring in different talents. Uh, different perspectives, different areas of expertise, uh, which influence the curriculum. I mean, that's why the courses continue to change, uh, because of the contributions of the ideas and the work of, of faculty members. The students change generationally. I have students now who are the children of the students that I taught when they were undergrads. Uh, <laughs> so and they 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 they're different from their parents, and that's one of the things that I think is really important that individuals understand. I always make that clear to students who are coming in. This is not your parents' institution; this is your institution. Because many have heard about the place and the t- experiences that their parents had, but those things are not written in stone. Uh, students continually and continuously transform the institution. Their tastes change, their attitudes change, their perspectives change, because they're they're influenced by the cultures. They're influenced by the environments that they've been a part of, and they bring all of those things to the university temporally. There's so many changes. I mean, I, I go back to when I was an undergraduate. I mean, I bought, well, I, I bought a typewriter with me, a trunk, one trunk of clothes, a stereo and LPs, albums, (laughs) to campus. If you look at what students move in with today, it's like a light years different. We didn't even have cable. We didn't have, you know, there were no cell phones. There were none of these types of things that influenced the types of experiences and the way that they engage uh, one another. They're They're impacted by the types of events that have been a part of their lives. I mean, the students who are here today don't remember 9-11 because they weren't, I mean, it wasn't part of their experience. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so they're shaped by history. Some of them only remember like two presidents <laughs> because, I mean, we've had some long-term presidents. So, you know, they, those are things that are recorded as far as their experiences are concerned. My references have to continually change because I can't not use, you know, the staples that I used back in, in my day. Because they look at you, it's like, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> who is that? <laughs> so, so, I mean, there are all sorts of things that change about an institution. And that, that's why the immersive student piece for me is so important because you – you have to connect with them. I'm old. I mean, I, and the, the reality, I understand the reality of that. But if I am only influenced by my own experiences, I, I can't connect with the folks who make up this community. It's unfair to them. I have to be accessible. I have to make myself accessible to them on every possible level. And that's critically important. If I'm, if I'm going to be effective, as a dean, I understand student development. I understand student development theory, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, all of those things are understood to me, but it's like, it's the work on the ground 
that you have to continually invest in to be effective uh, in, in this arena. Uh, and, you know, the, the expectation that students have is that the institution will be responsive uh, to the types of needs that I present. And the, the changes that have occurred on time with, uh, over time with reference to institutional resources. I, I remember going to Secobeck when I was an, an undergrad. That's the dining hall, the old mm-hmm. dining hall. And yeah. when we went to Secobeck, we had like two options for meals going through the line. If you go to the dining hall today, it looks like a gourmet restaurant compared to what, <laughs> compared to what we have. I mean, when you think of like, we didn't talk about gluten-free options when I was an <laughs> undergraduate. I mean, you know, if you were vegan, it was, it was, it was like catch as catch, get whatever you can to work that out for yourself. And we, we, we weren't focused on those issues back then. Today, those issues are really important because you want to support the success of all students. So institutions are a lot more, a, a lot more adaptive in terms of meeting the needs. Resources, clinic, the resources that we have in areas of mental health. Uh, and in terms of ADA accessibility, these things are very important today. They were important then, but no one focused on them as much. I mean, these have been evolutionary changes that have occurred in the institution over the course of, 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 of time. It's, it's made, continued to make us better uh, as an institution. I, and and I, I just really love being able to celebrate student success. I tell people my, I have two favorite days on campus. I have many great days, but my two favorite days are move-in day, witnessing the new population of students coming into the institution, coming into the academy, that sense of awe and, and nervousness that they have for, you know, to, the anticipation of what's going to unfold during the course of, of that journey. And that's matched by graduation day, because on that day, you really, you, you hear from them. I dress the class. It's one of the traditions I've done for generations, hooding students, making sure that everyone's ready to process down. Yeah, I remember that. Campus walk. But on that day, I interact with just about every member of the class. And you hear from them about how the institution has impacted their lives, about where they're going for graduate and professional school, where they're moving to, the types of opportunities that they have in terms of job placement, the friends that they've made here, how organizations have influenced how they perceive or how they have connected with the institution. It's really a magical, you know, heart-filled day because you really get the sense that the institution has done some things that have been, have, are really well, have done things really well for a, seg- for a large segment of the students, which have put them in a position, have created the platform for them to have great lives. Uh, and as dean, I love staying in touch with alumni. If anybody who's been on my Facebook page knows that I stay on I stay in touch with a lot of students, but you watch their stories continue to unfold. The number of weddings I'm invited to and family events and even alumni gatherings, it's just so wonderful to see because during those events, as a consequence of those engagements, you get to hear and see the results of the investment 
that happened during the course of the four, three, or five years uh, that students had uh, as undergraduates. And, and it's so rewarding. I don't have a favorite class. I, I, my favorite is having had this marvelous experience of seeing so many general generations of, of Mary Washington students come here, drink from the cup of knowledge, as Jefferson said, and to, to truly use those experiences to go out and have the lives that many of them didn't dream of. I was one of those. I had no idea how my life would turn out. I didn't. Again, remember I told you I came here to be an attorney. Mm -hmm. I am so thankful for Mary Washington because I am not an attorney. And I've had the opportunity to, to engage generations of students and see the marvelous consequences of higher education uh, taken on by so many citizens who are now community leaders, parents, um, you know, movers and shakers, and, and, and just doing fantastic things. Yeah, and that comes through with the, like, the joy that you have when you speak about it, and that comes through in the, like, the authenticity that you were talking about before, which is why you're invited, I feel like, to weddings and alumni gatherings and all those things, because we as students, I, I will speak generally for most students at Mary Washington, know that you care deeply about the school and the students there and it, and it comes through. And I think that's, it's a, it's a pillar for a lot of students that isn't at other schools. I, I, I don't know. I've not been to other schools, but from, from what I've heard, you are a unique phenomenon in the, in the colleges. Like it, some version of you is a unique phenomenon in the college experience. And I think it speaks volumes to the fact that you do get invited to all those things. So, uh, so good job. <laughs> um, I wanted, you mentioned Dr. Farmer earlier and I wanted to, I didn't want to interrupt the conversation that we were having before, but can you speak a little bit to, to Dr. Farmer and the impact that he had on, on Mary Washington? A lot of the students in, in my generation know him through the statue that that's mm -hmm. at Mary Washington or the multicultural center that's named after him, but we didn't, I didn't know him. I didn't know yeah, much about him at all. He was gone by the time you... Right, but I'm just like, I didn't know much about him at all. It was just a name that most of the students right. knew, but I don't think knew much about. So can you just speak to him and, and sort of the impact that he had on, on Mary Washington and, and you as an individual? Dr. Farmer was an amazing individual. He, he was someone who, from the very youngest, uh, stood out as, as, as an intellect, uh, as a passionate and... and individual who believed in equality, uh, who, who sacrificed his life uh, to make a difference in the lives of others. And I, I just say that he was one of the big four. I mean, this is a, this is a person who worked with Dr. King. Mm -hmm. This was a, the person who was with Ethel Randolph. This was a person who, who was in the room uh, when decisions were being made and who influenced policy and practice, who, who you know, was responsible for the, the rights that many of us enjoy today. I mean, if it were not for Dr. Farmer, I wouldn't have had entree to Mary Washington. Uh, you know, the, thanks for those individuals who were the leaders 
of the civil rights movement. He was one of those persons, and he was here. He was a professor here at the University of Mary Washington, someone that students had the opportunity to hear from directly as he spoke about his experiences, as he talked about being jailed, as he talked about being beaten, as he talked about the the meetings with presidents and senators to influence policy changes, to talk about what he did within administrations to make sure that fairness and social justice was a part of discussions uh, that were taking place. And having the opportunity to meet him and get to know him uh, when I returned, because he wasn't here when I was an undergraduate, but he was here when I got back. But to meet him, get to know him and to talk with him was an amazing gift. I mean, I, he, he was from Shirley Chisholm. I mean, all of these people who came to Mary Washington because Dr. Farmer was here. And I got to meet them because Dr. Farmer was here. Uh, it's just extraordinary. And his course was a very popular course. Uh, there's a reason that the auditorium in Monroe Hall is named for him. Um, we've just, the university just renamed what was Trinkle Hall Farmer Hall and recognition of his leadership and the significance of his contributions, not just as a civil rights leader, but as an educator because he did influence how students understood the history of this nation. His course is a very popular course. And I I know when I do some of the social posts on social media about Dr. Farmer, I love seeing how our alums who had the benefit of taking his classes respond. And it's just amazing the things that they say. Everybody talks about that voice of his, that powerful voice of Dr. Farmer. But you can just hear it anywhere he was in that big laugh uh, that, that he had. But he was sincere that this was his opportunity to invest in future generations the, the sense that they could continually work to make the world a better place. And everybody I knew who, who took his classes, that's one of the things that they, they say. I mean, he influenced not only the individuals who were part of the movement, but we are very thankful that because he was here, because he taught here, he influenced a whole new way of individuals who continue to do work to make a difference. And and today, I think we do a better job as a community in talking about Dr. Farmer, because he's not just the statue that's on Campus Walk. He's not just the building. He's not just the James Farmer Multicultural Center. He's not just the lecture hall. He's not just the James Farmer Scholars. He is truly representative of an institution that commits itself to educating individuals to change the world. Sounds like a remarkable individual. I wish I could have met him at some point. He'd been somebody I'd love to just listen to his story. Um, there's always people like that. you got to take the time to just know their story and, and all sorts. Um, it's getting a bit late. I know you haven't had dinner yet. Well, I've got one more. <laughs> <laughs> one more, one more. I'm one more, fine. <laughs> one, more, one more question for you before we let you go. And that is when I heard from 
uh, Chip Tarkenton that you were going into the Peace Corps, my immediate reaction was there is no one better for that than you. So how did you come to that conclusion that I guess now that this was the time for you to, to leave education, but also that the Peace Corps was what you wanted to do next? Well, the Peace Corps is something that's always been in the background. I mean, because of Kennedy, President Kennedy established this program to build bridges across the world, um, to allow citizens to commit themselves to service and world understanding and being partners with, with communities around the world. Uh, when I was an undergraduate here, I had a professor by the name of Alice Rapson. Uh, professor Rapson was in the, soci- the psychology department. And I was amazed because this woman, who was a phenomenal educator, uh, upon retirement, she was going to do the Peace Corps. That's like, wow, you can do the Peace Corps when you retire? Because I, I, I didn't know it was an option. It was something that I was interested in. But again, I, as I stated, I'm from a working class background. And it's something I thought about. But my parents said, you got to go to work. I mean, you're, you're, you're off the dole. I mean, <laughs> so, so it, was, it was not something that it was an option for me uh, upon graduation. But, it, you know, after hearing from Professor Rapson and she was, her experience was in the Marshall Islands. And it's like, wow, I could do that when I retire. And it's always been in my mind. I've been talking about this for years. I'm excited about the prospect of serving in the Peace Corps. Uh, you know, because of COVID, things are still delayed. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll you know, fingers crossed and, you know, as, as things unfold. But it's something that I've been interested in doing for a long time. And, and this is perfect timing. I will still, one of the uh, responsibilities I will have is as an educator. I mean, I'll, I'll teach. So my, my uh, portfolio as an educator will not end. Uh, upon retirement. And and being someone who is very much interested in global connections, I travel a lot. I've been to 115 different countries. I, I love, you know, having the opportunity to engage others, to engage difference, really enhances our understanding of ourselves and our communities and the places that we call home. And it's just been something that has been a powerful part of my life. I go back to, again, when Bruce London told me about his experiences in Thailand. It's like, you know, wow. I mean, you've been out of the country. <laughs> and yeah, as, an, as, a, as a, a kid from Richmond, Virginia, I didn't know that that was a possibility. Yes, I knew that people traveled, but the people who were part of the community where I came from didn't have those options. Uh, and I had a desire to do that, and that desire remains. So this is a vehicle for that will allow me to do the service, to incorporate, again, cultural um, connections, to be a partner with global communities. And, and I'm very much excited. All right. I know I said that was the last one. I lied. <laughs> you, have, you have one piece of advice for graduating classes, the, the young younger, by sort of demographic, what would it be? Well, I, it's, that's difficult. I, 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 I think the best part of journeying into the world is the sense of a, a sense of discovery that still awaits. It, it, it's, it's not over. Learning's not over. 
your education's not done. The opportunities that you will be afforded are not done. Be open to the ongoing discovery that's out there. Be excited about the unexpected joys that you will have as a consequence of meeting different types of people or taking on something that initially makes you nervous, but as, an, as a consequence of doing it, it stimulates you. It gets you more excited. That's one of the things about travel. Initially, if you haven't done it before, people are really nervous. But when they do it, it's like, wow, I want to do that again. That, that's the coolest, coolest thing. So be open to those opportunities. It doesn't end at college graduation. It's just one of the many beginnings that you will have. Awesome. God, going to have to listen to this one back, I think. Lots of tidbits of information in there. I learned a lot. I appreciate your time. Love hearing your story. Uh, someone we didn't get to chat with you too often on campus, but was always curious or always wanted to have this conversation. So very grateful for the opportunity to, to do that. And I thank you for your time. Well, well, I thank you and keep up this amazing work. I love it. Thank you. Really appreciate it. With that, guys, we'll see you guys next time. Peace.